Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We just recorded bonus episodes on Oppenheimer and Haunted Mansion, with more to come. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast voted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. And Genevieve Kosky. Our co-host Keith Phipps was in the studio like five minutes ago, but he ran out of the room following some frantic animated chipmunk, and we're not really sure what to do about that. So we're calling an audible on this one, and we're bringing in Vulture and New York Magazine TV critic Jen Cheney in his place. Welcome back to the podcast, Jen. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. The last time you were here, I was not. So I, I feel like I'm, I missed an opportunity on that one uh, to talk movies with you, and I'm looking forward to it this time. Yeah, me too. Uh, as we're recording this, the biggest movie news of 2023 so far is still unfolding. Greta Gerwig's Barbie is dominating the box office and packing sold-out theaters. To some degree, it got a boost from its release alongside Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, because both films came out on the same day, and the impromptu double feature that fans have dubbed Barbenheimer became a full-on social phenomenon. That said, though, Oppenheimer on its own was a first weekend hit, crossing the $200 million mark worldwide, but Barbie has made more than $380 million in the same time period. Apparently, the studio comedy is not dead. Our usual podcast format won't let us do two new releases at the same time, though, so instead of hitting the Barbenheimer double, we're looking at a different double feature Barbie pairing this week. Genevieve, you want to fill our listeners in? Sure. The original marketing around Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie was intensely secretive about the film's actual plot, so it took a while before we all realized how much the movie revolves around Barbie's ideal, enchanted life in the imagination-driven world of Barbie land, and the horrifying reality she faces when she travels to reality to find the person who's been playing with her real-world equivalent, accidentally putting dark, depressive thoughts into Barbie's plastic head. That plotline and the Barbie movie's focus on a fluffy fantasy version of femininity all took us back to 2007's Enchanted. Kevin Lima's musical about an animated Disney-style princess who gets booted out of her cartoon kingdom by a scheming witch and winds up on the streets of New York City, where she starts to question some of her long-standing assumptions about her princess life. So this week, we'll journey from a colorful fantasy land into bleak reality for a mocking look at feminine stereotypes in Enchanted. Then next week, we'll do exactly that all over again, except this time backward and in plastic stiletto heels with Barbie. Stay tuned. has never been anything like Enchanted. <laughs> Thank you. Because no other story has ever taken you <gasps> Edward, we need help! to a land as strange and terrifying as ours. Oh my. I was wondering if one of you might direct me to the castle. Watch it, will you? Grumpy. Nobody's been very nice to me. Yeah, well, welcome to New York. Thank you. Giselle, I will rescue you! No. Who's gonna rescue me? I seek a beautiful girl. I, I, I'd like to find one of them too, you know? Their world and our world... I think she may be a real princess. ...are about to collide. All right, everyone, let's tidy things up. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And nothing will ever be the same. So most people would probably agree that while Enchanted spoofs Disney animated movies, it's pretty general and affectionate send-up. The movie centers on a classic animated Disney princess who gets pulled into the real world, where she's immediately and obviously too innocent to function, and full of airheaded misconceptions about how the world works. But while the message is that Disney characters are kind of simplistic and shallow, She's also portrayed as sweet and admirable, capable of inspiring people and making the world a better place. Disney movies may be a little saccharine and sentimental, Enchanted suggests, but isn't that still better than being cynical? 
It's a funny message because by all reports, the original spec script for Enchanted by writer Bill Kelly was exactly that, cynical. Enchanted director Kevin Lima describes the original version as snide and satirical, a story more about mocking Disney tropes than embracing them. One of the few examples from that first draft that surfaced in interviews about Enchanted? In the original version, naive princess-to-be Giselle, in emerging from her magical kingdom to the real world of modern Manhattan, pops out of a cake at a party, and onlookers immediately assume she's a stripper and try to talk her into taking off her clothes. This still isn't a Ralph Bakshi level of Disney lampoonery, but it isn't something Disney was ready for back in 1997 when the script was written. In fact, Disney wasn't ready for the movie at all. And after buying it, and what Lima describes as an intense bidding war, the company workshopped it and then backburnered it for years. And then Shrek hit the fan. Back in 2001, when DreamWorks' animated movie hit theaters, it was considered edgy and caustic, an open Disney parody full of fart jokes and princess gags, aimed at the company by former Walt Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg. It came at a time when Disney's own kids' movies were struggling for identity and becoming more and more expensive while making less and less money. When the Enchanted script was pulled out of mothballs, it was specifically because the company was looking for its own Shrek, something that felt more self-aware and hip, something that wouldn't look corny or out of touch. But Lima, who was given the go-ahead to update and revise the script, didn't see it as a way to make fun of the company so much as a way to salute it. As he puts it in a commentary track he posted to YouTube, he set out to make Enchanted a love letter to classic Disney. And so it is. Unlike in Kelly's original version, Enchanted opens with a 10-minute animated sequence about a happy princess living in an elaborate forest home surrounded by helpful animals and singing a classic I Want song, written by Disney stalwarts Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Before long, a handsome prince named Edward finds Giselle, and after one quick duet, they happily headed back to his castle to be married. The whole sequence is absolutely crammed with references to classic Disney animated movies. The animal designs are familiar, the tropes are all classic Disney. The movie even begins with a picture book opening up to frame the story, as beloved Disney emeritus Julie Andrews narrates the Once Upon a Time opening. Those references are all specific visual nods to Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty in particular. The irony being that Disney didn't animate any of it. The company had already laid off most of its traditional animators at that point, and it fell to James Baxter Animation, a company founded by a former Disney employee, to fill in. Once a Wicked Queen, played by Susan Sarandon, attempts to get rid of Giselle by tossing her into the real world, specifically through a portal to Manhattan, the movie opens up into reality, where the voice actors show up on screen. Amy Adams, back then considered a virtual unknown in spite of her Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for 2005's Junebug, gives a star-making performance opposite, at the time, much more famous actor Patrick Dempsey, aka McDreamy, the breakout star of Grey's Anatomy. James Marsden as the gullible Prince Edward, Timothy Spall as his double-dealing sidekick Nathaniel, and Susan Sarandon as the queen round out the cast. As Dempsey's character Robert meets Giselle, takes her for a mentally addled homeless woman, and tries to help her while keeping her at a New York's arm's length, Edward and Nathaniel look for her. Edward to sweep her back to the altar in their homeland of Andalusia, Nathaniel to kill her on the queen's behalf. It all ends at a big fancy New York City ball, which gives the filmmakers a chance for a big dance sequence with lots of elaborate costumes, seemingly a must in a Disney live-action princess musical. So where does the cynicism come in? Mostly in the idea that Giselle and Edward are hopelessly naive and completely at odds with reality. But an actual cynical movie would have them eventually realizing that, remaking themselves as a result, and having to come to harsh terms with the difference between their glossy fantasy life and the real world. Instead, neither of them do. Giselle experiences a small amount of doubt about marrying a man that she's known for a day, but quickly swaps out that idea in favor of marrying Robert, a man she's known for maybe three days. Edward quickly finds a new princess in the form of Robert's maybe soon-to-be fiancé Nancy, played by Adina Menzel, who preposterously does not get to sing. She isn't the only Disney figure getting a role here, incidentally. Jodie Benson, the voice of Ariel in The Little Mermaid, gets a small role. And so do Judy Kuhn, the voice of Pocahontas, and Paige O'Hara, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. And that's all part of tipping off how much Enchanted really is a celebration of Disney and the Disney mythos, rather than the caustic send-up it originally started out as. But if you want even more evidence, look at how many echoes it had into Disney's future. As much as the animated scenes clearly reflect the past, they also inspired later Disney stuff. Look at Giselle prancing around her forest home, making an elaborate handicraft boyfriend with her animal friends and tossing her hair around, and you'll see Rapunzel entangled, which came along three years later. Look at Edward's swoopy hair, sharp chin, and high cheekbone smirk, and his huge white horse, and you'll see Flynn and Maximus, also from Tangled. 
And look at Elsa in Frozen, bridling at the idea of her sister marrying a prince that she just met solely because they sing together well, and you'll see an echo of that plot point from Enchanted, but with a lot more follow-through. Then look at the overall humor of Disney movies that followed. Enchanted proved to Disney that a little meta-humor, a little self-awareness, and a whole lot of Disney Easter eggs were all things their audience loved. Without Enchanted, I think you don't get the princess parody sequence from Ralph Wrecks the Internet, or Bruno singing a line from Frozen's Let It Go in Encanto. Enchanted is ultimately just Disney praising itself, but praising itself with a little more self-effacing humor and a little more magic mirror reflection than it ever had been comfortable with before. It isn't cynical, it isn't cutting, but it was Disney finding its own way down the Shrek path without just copying Shrek, and we're all better off for that. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Oh, yeah, here. Watch this. Watch very carefully. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna put it in the sand here like that. <gasps> oh, do it again! Show me! That's wonderful! Show me again! Alright, last time. There you go. There it is. And look. <gasps> You're a wizard! <laughs> what? This is a very nice place. Yeah? And we're eating dinner. Yeah. This is a date. Yeah. No, 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 no. We're just, um, we're just friends. So Enchanted is a movie that I personally didn't think all that much of at the time when it came out. And then I, I came to find that decades later, it has become kind of this watershed movie uh, for a certain generation of people who encountered it at exactly the right time. I am curious what everybody thinks the passionate connection that people have to this movie, where it comes from exactly. I mean, I think you say it yourself. It's like if they caught it at the right time in their lives. And I, I, I think to be frank, like probably all of us on this podcast are like maybe a little <laughs> beyond or maybe a little beyond that point in our life when this came out in 2007. That's a kind way of putting that, Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it, really, it really changed my middle age. It was... I know. <laughs> Yeah. But but I mean, to answer your question, and like, I'm just kind of speculating here, but I think it this movie does maybe function as like, a little bit of a bridge between like, quote unquote, childhood entertainment and more adult isn't even the right word, but like, it's an adult relationship, you know, uh, like it brings the uh, adult world into the Disney princess canon, which is like just inextricably linked to childhood. So I think there is sort of maybe this sense of like, you know, if again, if it hits you at the right point in your life, maybe when you are kind of on the cusp of adulthood, it maybe feels like a movie that is just reflecting that time in your life. That's just a guess, though, because I was very much an adult when this movie came out. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like sort of like my first romantic comedy, right? Yeah, kind of. It, yeah. Because because you're because you are sort of bridging between for kids very familiar you know, animated world into, you know, the, the, the sort of real world love triangle with a twist, I guess, that you that you that adults know, know or aren't familiar with from romantic comedies. Well, I also think things sometimes become touchstones because you watch them over and over and over again. And I think this is one of those movies where as a parent, if my kid was watching this over and over again, I'd be like, that's fine, because I, I kind of like this movie, too. So it's the kind of movie you can put on and like everybody can kind of enjoy it. And so it means that if you had a young child who wanted to watch it over and over again, you're like, that's fine with me. And then it just becomes, you know, it just seeps into your brain cells forever. Yeah, I feel like this movie has just kind of occupied the same space as a, a few other movies. Other ones that are too young for me are uh, Hocus Pocus, mm -hmm. um, The Witches, uh, the Road to El Dorado comes to mind. Like some of the younger people that I work with have these movies as like exactly that kind of touchstone. Something that, I'll throw I'll throw a goofy movie in there too because it was directed is, by mm -hmm. Kevin Lima, uh, the director one. of this one. Yeah, 
Yeah, certain movies that they had access to, depending on exactly when those movies came out, it, they might have been on VHS or, or early DVD or even on streaming, but they were often something that people had access to and the ability to watch over and over and over again, you know, which some of us when we were children, that technology was not around yet because we were living in caves, uh, killing dinosaurs <laughs> with knives. So <laughs> that ability to rewatch is definitely part of it. But I think all of these movies are also connected by that sort of feeling of this is accessible for kids, but it's just a little twisted. It's just a little darker, a little weirder, a little further out there. And there is that sort of sense of like for all of these movies, maybe bridging the, the first very safe steps into a more adult uh, form of movie. Mm-hmm. It's also a little like my first meta movie, <laughs> you, you know? Um, and I think like, Shrek kind of falls into that bucket too for a a lot of people you know like just like for everyone there's like that first movie where you like kind of recognize that the thing is making fun of itself in a Mm -hmm. way or you know and I think to recognize and key into that kind of humor for the first time is maybe a very memorable thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the big things I kind of wanted to talk about here is is kind of that meta moment. Like I, I keep thinking back to Ralph Rex the Internet and how much the uh, Vanellope hangs out with Disney princesses sequence was made for viral moments, was made for here's Disney hilariously making fun of itself, sending itself up you know, let's clip and meme this endlessly. And it feels like we've gotten to a place where that style of humor is just very much standard. You know, the the very much the, uh, this is the thing that feels just a little cynical so we can give it to you without feeling like we're selling it to you. But at this point, we really are packaging and selling it. As of this movie, this kind of thing wasn't common at all. And I'm curious how it plays for everybody, like rewatching or revisiting to whatever degree you did for this podcast, this movie in this age where kind of everything feels meta and and connected to the past. This movie is so gentle about it, though, Mm -hmm. you know, and and also kind of and also to the degree that is that it makes fun of itself, particularly at the beginning it is kind of making fun of a, a of an older era of sort of a Snow White and Aurora era of Disney and not Beauty and the Beast and beyond where we expect more substantive princesses than might have been expected in the days of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. So in a way, it's kind of like it, it's Disney very it, turning the page in a shrewd but not necessarily edgy <laughs> or, or uh, way on its past, on a past that it had already left behind decades ago. Well, I think now, too, like the the live action Disney adaptations, as we all know, are often just remakes of animated Disney movies. And I appreciate that at least this was trying to tell a new story. I mean, obviously, it's borrowing very heavily from stories we already know well, like you said, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Cinderella. But it still felt like fresh enough that I didn't feel like, oh, boy, here's something recycled that I've already seen before. It felt like they were, you know, to put this in hip hop terms, they were sampling um, (laughs) as opposed to. Uh, doing Covering. a cover. Yeah. This is the first time Enchanted has ever been put in hip hop terms. <laughs> well, I bet that's not true, Scott. <laughs> Ooh. I look forward to uh, hearing Jen's uh, elaborate uh, Enchanted rap later. <laughs> Just real quick, though, uh, responding to what Scott said about it, like hearkening back to an older era of Disney, like I will just like push back that like James Marsden's character is very heavily Gaston coded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a bit of Ariel to Giselle in in the real world, and the of course the big park song is very under the sea vibes. So like it's not like it is pulling from I think all eras of disney right it but, pulls but it but in terms of the parody part it, you know in terms of making mm-hmm. fun of itself the the marsden character i would say i mean he he evokes gaston but not completely in the sense that he is not a jerk like he's right. just kind of a you know uh, more of a nitwit cardboard disney prince, prince charming. who doesn't really he's not really he's <laughs> charming right he's right he's prince charming and isn't isn't really a deep thinker and and that's fine it's not he's not actively you know hostile 
Speaking of actively hostile, when we uh, conceived this pairing, Scott was a little actively hostile towards <laughs> Enchanted. Uh, this movie is not like we we debated. I, I I don't think any of the the three of our regular hosts here like love this movie openly. Like I, we all kind of feel that it has flaws. There is sort of a question of. Genevieve wondered how much we would have to say about it, which having rewatched it, I'm not worried because there's a billion things to unpack in this. But Jen, I get the feeling uh, from reading, particularly your writing about Disenchanted, the the very late sequel to this movie that came out last year, uh, that you're a more hardcore Enchanted fan than the rest of us. And I'm, I'm just curious for your overall take on this movie. I mean, hardcore might be a little bit of a, a stretch, but I definitely really enjoyed it when I saw it. If I remember correctly, I did take my son because he was still pretty young when this came out. Or maybe I didn't actually. He might have been too, too young at that point. But we definitely watched it later at home. And I remember him liking it too. And I just thought it was like just it wasn't super deep, but I thought it was really like a delightful twist on what you normally see in both a rom-com and a Disney movie. Um, Like you were talking about earlier, Tasha, it was like more self-referential at that point in time than we were used to seeing from Disney. And that I found that refreshing. And, you know, you have to think back to where these some of these actors were at the time. Like Amy Adams is coming off of Junebug, getting an Oscar nomination. And so to me, this was like, oh, what a perfect role for her, because she's really she gets to like play that wide eyed, innocent thing that she does so well. And then James Marsden, who I'd seen in many other things, but that year he did this movie and Hairspray. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) I didn't know he could sing. I didn't know he could dance. And it just blew my mind like how multifaceted his talent was. So I think some of those elements just really pleased me a lot and and made me really appreciate and enjoy it. Yeah, when I think of this movie's quote unquote legacy, or, or even just like how it was received at the time, I associate it so much with people loving Amy Adams and James Marsden. And, uh, you know, this is Junebug aside, this is, you know, often called Amy Adams, like first leading lady role, you know, but so I think there's maybe there's maybe like just a sense of discovery built in to mm-hmm. it as, as well. Like, you, even if you like technically, like had seen these performers before, like recognizing that they can do something that you didn't know they could do. is just like kind of exciting. I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were excited by that. And like, also, just this movie does not work without Amy Adams' performance, <laughs> yeah. like, you, you know? I mean, she's inc- really incredible and was kind of the, that performance was kind of the focus for me. I mean, obviously, she's the, the middle of the movie, but but just to see, you know, not, not just somebody who can play the sort of innocent Disney princess character and can sing and dance and do and pull off that element of it but the way she progresses throughout the movie that starts to process the real world it starts to you know the world that we know anyway it starts to have an effect on her it changes her perspective like all of that is like very subtly registered i think in that performance to, to where to where she gets to that place in the end where she where she wants something more significant she wants at least a date before marrying the <laughs> the prince and she wants this uh, and ultimately she ends up with this uh single father rather than the person that she's fated to be with and and i think like that progression takes place in a, in a subtler way than just than than all of the big splashy stuff that she also really nails too yeah i mean i also think that another actress might have played this uh played more to the sort of ditziness of it because she there is a little bit of an element of that because she is a fish out of water. She's never been in New York or, or the real world at all. But I think the way Amy Adams plays it, it's like she's just a walking heart emoji. Like she just is so <laughs> open hearted and compassionate. Uh-huh. And so she doesn't seem dumb. She just seems, you know, uninformed, I guess yeah. I would say. And innocent. And I, or, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really appreciate that about her performance. Like you're rooting for her from the very, very beginning. I would say knocking on the billboard is probably not, probably not one of the smarter moments. So. <laughs> she just got here, Scott. Yeah. And boy, okay. she really wants and to go back. she's coming from a two-dimensional world, so it makes sense that she would be attracted oh, to a two-dimensional oh, rendering. That, that's actually See? a real... Levels. Oh, that's, that's, the best ar- that's the best argument I could have imagined for that. Damn it. All of this said, I, I will say that my my biggest gripe with this movie, which I, I have to say, I rewatching this movie, I think I enjoyed a lot more this time than I did back in 2007. I I feel like in 2007, maybe the 
kind of like let's everybody wants to do Shrek now. Like everybody wants to be doing uh, like edgy humor and uh, edgy parodies of the classics that we grew up with. And by the time we got to this, uh, this felt a little toothless for me. Uh, but also the whole love plot line just did really does not sit particularly well Mm -hmm. with me. And Amy Adams performance is a big part of that. Like she comes across like a sweet child who has not really figured out like what the world is and that's fine. And she's, she's very charming and very fun to watch and very believable as a, a Disney princess. But then you get this like, older kind of hardened New Yorker played by Patrick Dempsey, who is just very clearly an adult man. And the relationship between them and his attraction to her gives me the squickies. Uh, I I do not really care for stories like this. And there have been quite a few of them over the years where a man who seems particularly older and, and certainly a lot more worldly wise finds a woman attractive because she's so like naive and helpless in a way i just and because she cleaned and took care of his kid for him (laughs) yeah that's that's not great but yeah the whole side plot where he has a girlfriend that he's about to ask to marry him played by adina menzel who does not get to sing and what the hell is (laughs) yeah that's not a real problem (laughs) it's so weird Uh, Uh, and you know she wasn't she she was already like a broadway star at that point but she wasn't really known for disney movies the way she is now but even it's a preemptive meta meta casting (laughs) yeah i i mean the the fact that in disenchanted they pretty much just say you know we didn't have her sing last time we're going to have to have her sing twice as much this time to make up for it is pretty funny but she is also just very clearly a grown up new york woman uh, she she feels like a a little hardened and a little bit of a cynic and i'm so much more taken by the very quick romance between her and prince edward where he says romantic things and she's just like wow, that's so refreshing. There was no cynicism to that at all. And then she's tempted to run off with him. It just, it feels less icky and predatory, I think, than than Patrick Dempsey falling for this very sweet, naive child who uh, cleans his apartment, takes care of his child. <laughs> predatory is a little sharp. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it, honest, it feels, it feels almost a little pedophilic. When, wow. And wow. I, well, I mean, you, you do have to take into account that like Disney princesses are for the most part canonically like between the ages of 15 and 19, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, like they're. And 16 uh, is, is pretty much the average. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously Amy Adams is older than that in this movie and that's extra textual, but uh, it is something that it kind of informs that, that reading, which I kind of have a, a similar squick about Tasha. But I also think a lot of it comes down to like, I think maybe one of the bum notes of this film is Patrick Dempsey. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's the role, maybe it's the performance, maybe it's both. And I get that like it's hard to be a straight man in this uh, in this context, you know. And I I feel like I read something to the effect of him kind of finding it a difficult role for that reason. Maybe it is just the like the cynicism as a defining personality trait. Maybe it's just the overall kind of blandness <laughs> do, do, do any of you like want to defend him here not really i mean yeah. I, I he's of the leads he's probably my least favorite but i, I want to go back to something that tasha was just touching on with the whole ickiness potential ickiness i think one of the issues with this movie is that as quote-unquote subversive as it gets which isn't terribly subversive but within the context of a disney movie a little bit it never is asking you to question whether Giselle should continue being a princess or to question whether she should want to be with a man. Like it's still working within the structure and tropes of a movie. It's never completely flipping the table. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's watching it again, that's really stood out to me. And I don't necessarily need that. Like I'm fine mm-hmm. with this man was never right for her and she finds another man. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what makes it not quite land for me is that element of, wait, I've been a fool for thinking it was okay to marry somebody I don't know who I've known for a day. Instead, I'm going to marry this guy that I've known for three days. You know, it just, <laughs> this movie never gives us the moment that I think we really need where the two of them connect in a meaningful way over 
anything whatsoever they have in common. Like it is one of those ingenue, like two people lock eyes and fall in love kind of movies. But the big sequence where both of them kind of realize their feelings is completely wordless. There's never a, a moment where they sit down and talk as equals, where they connect as as real people. There's her lecturing him about love in ways that he brushes off and then kind of sinks in later. There's her sort of c- gradually coming to see him as a person. But there's never a moment of like real connection between them. And that it's that that doesn't lead into the squick for me. It, it mostly just makes this not work as a a romance. Like I have no reason to root for these two as a couple, except that they dance well together, which in another movie might be fine, but in a movie that's specifically saying, well, the two of us sang together, but that doesn't make us the perfect couple. We need to rethink this. A movie where we dance together, that makes us the perfect couple. We don't need to rethink this. Just kind of falls a little flat for me. Yeah, I mean, it, it is essentially, even as it's sending up the tropes of the, you know, Disney fairy tale romance, it is in the end just reifying them, you know? And I think like this movie's idea about its romance is like wrapped up in sort of the the two romances together. Like one doesn't quote unquote work without the other because you have like these two cynical people who are together and these two dumb romantics who are together and both of them together, like the same type together don't work. So you just switch them. So there's a cynic and a romantic in each pairing. And that's what works. <laughs> you know, it's like a more of a plug and play romance than based in any sort of moment or connection. It's like just kind of part of the bigger whole of the narrative. But there, I mean, the connection, I mean, is really just a coming together. I mean, you could, the, the tension between their perspectives on love and each of them sort of bending in the other's direction. And that's that. Mm-hmm. And that's when they sort of end up meeting in the middle. But, but I, I, what am I? I, I don't want to be the one to defend this. Um, my thing with this movie is that, is that you really, you never really want the the quality trajectory of a movie to be kind of a downward slope you know you, you never mm. want to ski down the uh, uh down a movie like uh, like this and I, I feel like it, so much of what is good about the film is front loaded mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and that and that it becomes uh it, mo- less less charming more problematic uh, you know uh, the, the, i think the, the finale anything uh, the, st- the stuff with susan sarandon and the dragon all that stuff is it's it's lousy but i think there's also this it loses some essential wit and tension after a while like it, it lets a lot of stuff go to quickly and i think we'll, we'll have a chance to really dig into that that more when we get to barbie because barbie doesn't lose any of it that and for really interesting reasons but like you know you have this this the opening which is really clever uh you know which is this kind of clever parody of of what uh, of of an old you know disney animated film and then you get a fish out of water comedy and i think and i almost wish i i wish that the film had really been a little bit stronger with the fish out of comedy elements that it was i think i think there there's there it's funny of course that she is able to transform the world and you know with the, like the happy working song which is sort of the highlight of the movie that's a really charming number and it's funny that there are rats and and uh, pigeons and flying around cleaning the place i think that's really good but i but i also feel like the film kind of forfeits some of that comic tension a little bit too quickly and it sort of loses its you know zip i kind of wanted to see what abel ferrara would have done with this but but uh, <laughs> uh no, I but yeah, I did kind of think like ah uh, could have this this film could have gone a little harder than it than it than it did and it uh, and been a little bit sharper and and funnier and a little more New Yorky but it's fine uh, I just I just think it kind of loses steam slowly over the course of, uh, over the course of its running time and I I don't think you really want a movie to do that yeah I personally would say that the musical highlight is how do you know rather than happy working song because it's so it's so big and it's certainly the song from this musical that most gets stuck in my head uh, but I agree with you that the movie is kind of overly front loaded I always thought that that was a me problem because I, I really like the animation in this movie you know it, it wasn't <laughs> done by Disney it, it's done kind of as a parody of Disney but in some ways it's richer and more mobile than the Disney movies that it's parodying 
because, you know, it was just, it was made with more modern technology than a lot of those movies. It's really pretty and engaging and it's diving into all of these tropes specifically. And for me, it's a, a little hard to come back from that once you get past the sort of the culture shock of the real world stuff and into, okay, now we're just doing a standard rom-com where these two people who didn't seem fit for each other now seem fit for each other. We we get into kind of standard elements. And in that sense, I think you're right. And the movie kind of rolls downhill in a way that would be very hard to avoid given the structure. I disagree with you about the musical number, though. I Happy Working Song is my favorite in this movie. Yeah, mine too. Because it is, I, I think, the most quote-unquote subversive moment in the movie because mm-hmm. it's just so, it's just a mix of sweet and disgusting <laughs> that you just never see in a Disney film. And, and I do remember seeing that in the theater and people just howling with laughter at that. And so, yeah, I just, that was the part where I was like, oh, they're really, they're really fucked things up with this movie but <laughs> but that's as extreme as it goes and i really admired that they at least went there and i've been humming it i've been humming it for i saw of what you watched it again a few days ago and happy working song i've been humming ever since it just it, it really kind of sticks in your head mm-hmm. genevieve you're the last vote and a uh, <laughs> particular song that stands out for you here I mean, those are the two. The, the the third one is like the song during the ball, right? Which is just like a, and the, well, the, the, the opening, the, the true love's kiss. Song. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Those don't. It, it's definitely one of those two. I think I'm. I can't. I'm gonna waffle and say I can't really decide between the two of them because I think like I think happy working song is probably like the catchier song to me, and it does have that really just strong comedic center of all the vermin coming and being the princess's helpers but i think the tell her you love her it's just it's it's just such a big sequence there's so much happening in it and there's like lots of different there's different textures to the whole sequence different types of comedy throughout it's just like it's it's a beautiful joyous movie sequence so i think like i probably lean toward that just in terms of like how it works in the film, but the actual song, I think Happy Working Song is what does it for me. I mean, I like that sequence for sure, for Mm -hmm. all the reasons you said, but Mm -hmm. I've also seen a lot of movie musicals with those kinds of sequences. I've never seen cockroaches clean a toilet. (laughs) So that's (laughs) groundbreaking to me. What? How do you live your life? (laughs) I think we have to defer to the guest on this this matter. Yeah, uh, Yeah, the the guest who agrees with you. There doesn't need to be a right answer, except for my answer, which is the correct one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, this is also cynical and subversive. It it feels like an enchanted moment. I, I certainly agree that Happy Working Song is a more playful and more subversive and more daring song. I also certainly agree that How Do You Know is a very traditional, you know, MGM musical style song. And I also sort of give it the side eye because I, I'm i not sure I understand where it comes from within the narrative. Like one of the things that I bothers me is such an an overstated version of what I feel about this movie. There's just this sort of like vague headcock, okay, but but what are we saying here that I get from the fact that we move out of this magical world into our world and the whole point seems to be you're not suited for this world, but like everywhere she goes, the world turns into her world. Mm-hmm. And I could buy that maybe a little more when she was dealing with animals and she was alone. But when she steps into Central Park and like all of New York just stops to come run up and like be background singers and dancers for her. The question that people always have about musicals is like, are these people really singing and dancing? Like, what what does that what does this mean? Like, what are we supposed to feel about what, if anything, is the reality here? And I've always thought that question was a little silly. You know, it's it's a musical. And now, of course, we're getting very subversive musicals like Schmigadoon, where people ask that question and, and get like kind of loudly slapped down for being silly. But here, for the first time, I'm like, we'll make up your minds. Are we in like the cynical, harsh, uh, difficult real world of New York where people act like New Yorkers? Or are we in a magical, happy Disney movie? I'm fine with either one of those options, but you told me it was one thing and you're showing me it was a different thing. And I'm not convinced that there's any purpose behind that or any thought behind that. I'm not convinced that you're saying anything. Like if if the idea was she brings a little magic with her, then I could I could accept that. But I just don't think the movie thinks it through that well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I don't know. I think I, I disagree. I think that's exactly what it's doing 
like yes she's a fish out of water but she has like you say this ability to bring magic with her into the world and and into the real world and like we see it like on a very just kind of simple level taking the musical numbers out of it like how she uh brings his clients who are getting divorced back together just by (laughs) sheer force of her sunny optimism you know i think like there's lots of little moments throughout the film of basically cynicism melting away in the face of Giselle and that park sequence is just like kind of the culmination of it but I think it you know especially like by the end you know this this weird ball (laughs) that 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 is apparently a, a common event but I don't know like by the time we get to like the climax of the ball, everyone is like, okay, yeah, this is definitely something that is fine to happen in our world. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I, I of I, all yeah. of the things in the movie that I, I did not question, that was probably number one. The idea that uh, people, very rich people in New York that want to pay big chunks of money can put on very elaborate costumes. And like, there's a, a Bridgerton ball that's touring around right now mm-hmm. where you can dress up in, in fancy costumes and, you know, go dance and hang out in the Bridgerton world. The idea that there's essentially a a fancy dance for very, very pricey people in Manhattan and that when stuff starts happening there, that I'll be like, oh, this is a show that's been put on for our benefit. Like if this movie was being made today, they would all pull out their phones and film it. There's just mm-hmm. no question in my mind that they're all just like, oh, this is we we paid seven hundred dollars for these tickets. Like, of course, there's a floor show, too. That's yeah. interesting, considering that James Marsden was in Westworld. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, it all connects. Yeah, it's all just about rich people being awful. Uh, also, <laughs> at the point where things get really like unbelievable, where Susan Sarandon turns into a dragon. At that point, we stop getting crowd reaction shots and we take the action away from the crowd. So we don't have to watch them say, oh, the special effects are really good. Like they're all probably freaking out, but we don't have to care what they're they're doing because we're we're away from that set at that point. Mm -hmm. That said, can somebody please tell me how the dragon got defeated? Because that sequence is so badly staged. (laughs) I think it just falls it seems seems like pip jumps on her head and somehow this like one ounce chipmunk completely unbalances this giant dragon and she falls i honestly fast forwarded through that part on this rewatch (laughs) because i I don't like it at all so i just was like let me just move right on particularly i don't know it just felt like Somebody said, well, we need a big scene with CGI. And it's a little bit reminiscent, I guess, of of like Sleeping Beauty. But I just oh, didn't I, no. I just didn't think you needed to go You're there. Right. I don't know. You're right. Oh, about I mean, I, 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 God almighty. Now that just it just seems like offensive now that you mentioned that, of course, it's Sleeping Beauty. And it's like that's like one of the most incredible sequences in Disney history. Like, yeah, like the Dread the Dragon and the Thorns and all that stuff. It's like, you know, splashed across the Cinemascope screen. It's like we get and, and we, we're getting gruel here. The gruel of a CG dragon. It's just oh, man, it's uh, hard, to, hard, to, hard to stomach. I mean, all, it seems like all of the side business here is pretty weak i mean i, I don't uh, you know i mean timothy spall genius right incredible mike we see him in mike lee films remarkable actor uh, none of that stuff is funny uh, the stuff the the chipmunk stuff is not it's like all of that you know the susan sarandon you know national treasure not much going on for her in this film i just feel like outside of our, our main story here uh, all the peripheral stuff just doesn't work well, well, you're talking about all the villain stuff, the the <laughs> basically like yeah. it, which, oh, the chipmunk, the chipmunk and Adina Menzel as right, well. But, but, we'll but throw the, those in there. Sure, but the chipmunk is like basically its function is to protect Giselle from the villains, you know, and interact with the villains a lot more than he interacts with the heroes. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and again, I think it's just like comes back to this movie is best as a fish out of water slash romantic comedy, but then it gets kind of weighed down in having to go through the motions of the fairy tale genre that it is parodying because you have to have the big villain showdown. But the movie's so much better when <laughs> she like like the the best thing Susan Sarandon's character does is push Giselle down the well and set, you know and set the uh, film in motion. I don't need more of her, but because this is 
you know, a Disney princess film, there needs to be the big villain showdown and our, you know, princess gets saved. Although in this case, it's, you know, her Prince Charming sort of who gets saved. So there's that you have to get that little inversion in there. Although I think that that sequence ends up playing out in an extremely cowardly way. I feel like knowing that they were doing the Sleeping Beauty thing and that that people have objected for decades to the fact that all of these Disney princesses are the stars of their own movies until the end when something threatens them and then the princess has to save them. Mm-hmm. They start with a subversion where it looks like she's going to have to save mm-hmm. her, her love. You know, she goes after that dragon with a sword. She climbs up the side of a building. She does a badass thing that's really kind of a, a stretch for her character. And then it's just like... Lima could not convince himself to go full hog and let her save him. It's It's got to be the chipmunk because either way they do it, if he ends up stepping up in some way, then you're just kind of, you know, cementing the cliche. If she saves him, then, you know, he, he doesn't get to be a man, I guess. So we have it neither way. Instead of having it both ways, we have it neither way. And a CG chipmunk saves the day in a very badly staged CG sequence. So, yeah, I I did not particularly care for that sequence. And like, I don't hate it. I just think it's a big nothing where this Mm -hmm. movie feels like it's trying to build up to a big something instead. That said, I really enjoy Sarandon. The whole the whole confrontation where they're all standing around the couch where Giselle is passed out and she's trying to convince everybody that it's no big deal and they should just walk away. I, I think that stuff's hilarious. She's a professional. <laughs> also, we we talked about Marsden really early on, but we kind of blitzed past him a little bit. People keep calling out Ryan Gosling as kind of the secret heart of the Barbie movie. We can debate whether that's true, but... James Marsden is the prince here. I really love this character mm-hmm. and his one note business and his stupid floppy hair and his <laughs> visible exhaustion with the real world. I just think he's a blast. I mean, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. <laughs> I I love him in this. I love that he c- continues to call people peasants. I, I, I laugh every time he does that. Uh, it's just like... It's the it, actually I feel like James Morrison didn't even said this in interviews because I feel like he, when I talked to him about Dead to Me, he may have said something like this. Somebody who has just so much unearned confidence is so fun to play. And I feel like this character is that he is no basis for being as assured of himself as he is, especially in New York. And yet he shows up and he's like, I'm going to save the princess. Everyone get out of my way. And it's just mm-hmm. absurd. And also he's very handsome. And that helps. <laughs> and he stabs a bus. Yeah, he, he, and he stabbed he, a bus. He shows a certain amount of like malleability though i mean mm-hmm. like he can go from you know but put it putting a sword to patrick dempsey's neck and then be told hey you know the guy's all right so it's like all right i'm done i'm done i'm done getting angry at this guy or oh yeah you, you want to go on a date okay i guess i'll do that that's fine <laughs> um uh so i i, I it, you know the, the conception of that character is really smart and and uh Marston plays him perfectly yeah and it's there's like nothing like really villainous to him like like i said he's he's gaston coded but you know he's ultimately a a good if dumb guy you know he's and uh, he's not really seen as a threat to the romance that we're supposed to be rooting for you know <laughs> um be, because he does have that quality that that you mentioned Scott of of like he's he's not threatened i guess because he has this unearned confidence whereas like Gaston you know has uh, is definitely compensating for something so i think there's there's none of that happening in in Prince Edward semi-earned kind of i mean like yeah he's, all, he's very good at day. hunting trolls it's, it's the only <laughs> thing that he's had you know <laughs> When he hasn't been in complete control of his world, right? I mean, like, yeah, this is just, he's just in this one place. It, I think it takes longer to shake one from one's confidence than uh, a day, I would say. Though, 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 though the real world is certainly, would certainly be a confidence shaker for, for uh, someone who isn't used to it. 
There is just also something very sweet about the fact that when he sees how the wind is blowing towards the end, he mm-hmm. he stands down. He wants yep. what's going to make her happy. And like, it makes him a little sad, but he it's just so clear that he's going to recover within five minutes. Mm-hmm. Even if Dina Menzel did not want to run off to his animated kingdom with him, he, he'd be fine. You know, Gaston's whole thing is that he cannot take being stymied and it makes him mean and crazy. But here... You know, finding out that his one true love, uh, the only girl in the world that could possibly finish his duet, is in love with somebody else. He's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's, that's how it goes. I guess I'll go sing with another girl. And yet, and yet, I think it's kind of galling on the other side of it that Adina Menzel's character is just like, all right, give her a smooch. You know, it's like <laughs> you're going to marry me. You know, they're they're about, they're going to get married. I, I think by like, that point in the movie, she is just very clearly seen that like she yeah. she is better than him. She is better than chasing around this guy who doesn't quite know what he wants. And he's who so... sends her e-cards and virtual flowers. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just in, in the moment where she catches him with uh, with Giselle early in the movie, he's just so awkward and dumb about it. You know, there's there's a way to deal with that like a grown up. And instead, he like flaps and rolls around like a slapstick uh, sideshow comic. And I like I, I wouldn't want to date that guy either. I, I would run off to the magical animated world with the guy with the floppy hair who stabs yeah, you're buses. Let, you're, you're letting your <laughs> you're letting your dis- distaste for this dude uh, get, get in the way of. Bad, I never bad, watched Grey's uh, Anatomy. I uh, I never had a thing for McDreamy. I I what? honestly don't know Patrick what Dempsey you, as an actor. Have you seen Lover Boy? Have you seen Can't Buy Me Love? Yeah, Can't Buy Me Love. Come on. I have seen Can't Buy Me Love. I have not seen <laughs> Lover Boy, but eh, regardless. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a pizza delivery Before we guy. move on, I want to touch on uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious whether anybody here wants to see the R-rated, the darker version that oh, supposedly is out there. What, most, what do you think definitely. that would bring to this? Like, what what do you want to see in a, a darker, more committed version of this movie that isn't here? I mean, some of it is just my, you know, sick curiosity to see what it <sighs> would have been and how far they would have pushed things. I also, as we've been talking, and I don't know where I'm going with this, but I was also thinking about, you know what this reminds me of? It also reminds me of Splash. And that oh, was yes, not... Oh, yes. Shout out to that. Yes. Uh, that was not R-rated. I want to say it was PG. Uh, I can't remember mm-hmm. if it was PG-13 yet, but but I do remember seeing it and being like, this movie's sexual. <laughs> like, there was, a, <laughs> yeah. there was a much more, like, outward feeling of passion between... Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah and and just kind of obviously weirdness because she was a mermaid that I wonder if they lean into that a little bit more in, in a darker version. I don't know. I would just I, be I curious actually, to see. Yeah, I was actually going to say something very similar, Jen, which is that I, I wonder if a version that, you know, could kind of acknowledge sexual attraction or, or, you know, more quote unquote adult themes would maybe help mitigate the squickiness where we are all feeling around the relationship mm-hmm. because Giselle is just such innocent, naive, young seeming character, uh, you know, not necessarily in how she's presented, but just in how she acts, you know, so mm-hmm. I feel like possibly an R-rated version might have allowed a little more kind of like gradual coming out of her shellness from from Giselle, you know, that that might have helped mitigate that. Uh, it, it, you know how I feel about this. I I, I was calling for Abel Ferrara's. <laughs> yeah. Team, so I, I definitely want to. I would definitely like to see yeah. the the the. I I mean I think it would well, have benefited and, and, and from you having want some beloved violence too. Belo- right? Some violence, exactly. But yeah. some, just some, some just a little a little more. A little more teeth. I mean, because this is New York City. They don't mess around. They don't mess around New York City. <laughs> yeah, this is a very uh, fantasy land, a Disney park version of New York City, even before everybody starts singing and dancing. And it would be interesting to see what like a, a, a darker version of that would be. There is that one quick scene where at the beginning where Giselle encounters a homeless man and is, uh, you know, it's, I guess, a little scary. You know, it's certainly scary for her. And it does at least like acknowledge a quote unquote scary side of New York, not saying that homeless people are inherently scary, just the way that it is. Well, he's still uh, a tiara. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Like she, he was he was a bad guy in this context. <laughs> but it's just like that one little blip of it for the most part. It's a very welcoming New York once the rainstorms stops. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, even that the scene is just played in such a cartoony kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, with him with him sort of gallivanting down the middle of the street, cackling. Yeah, uh, it just I mean, it does not feel it does not feel like any New York that I've ever visited. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the other thing is one of the gags, of course, is that when Giselle shows up in that huge ball gown and then when James Marsden shows up in that Prince outfit, that they're very clearly stand out. And I'm like, you know, what? I don't know if I'd look twice at them in New York, especially in Times Square. Especially like, in I would Times just Square. think that they were just like dressed like that on purpose to get us to take pictures with them. You know, I feel like I mean, that scene where she pops up out of the sewer in Times Square and the camera kind of spins around her. I had a weird moment of, oh, wait, we we saw this exact same shot at the end of uh, Captain America, the first Avenger, where he pops out of a, a room in Times Square and the camera spins around him as he looks mm. up at all these cameras. That Times Square in movies and what it's used to represent is just kind of endlessly fascinated. But I had the same reaction. Like, people give her side eye, but nobody comes up and tries to take a picture with her or hand her a dollar uh, for a, a photo <laughs> op. And again, if this movie was being made today, everybody would just whip out their cell phones and uh, and take pictures and you would actually hear people having a little dialogue what's what's this promoting what's the what's the viral thing here is this or for youtube like- some grimy all, Elmo would be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> these are all reasons to stage it in the old Times Square and have Abel Ferrara direct. <laughs> oh, you're obsessive, Scott. Uh, last thing. I know Jen has seen Disenchanted because she wrote about it. I watched it for the first time last night because I was curious. Um, I know Genevieve hasn't seen it. Scott, have you? I avoided it because I, I heard it stunk. So um, it's good, though. One of the people. uh, Yeah. Best movie ever. One of the people we know who says it kind of stunk was uh, one Jen Chaney. Jen, do you want to tell us a little bit about Disenchanted and why you were so disenchanted with it? I'll tell you what, Tasha, I had to reread that review and I was like, wow, I don't remember a lot of this film. I just remember that I didn't like it. And it just felt unnecessary and like such a blatant attempt to just, oh, this movie was successful. So let's just make another one somehow. As you alluded to earlier, they did bring Adina Menzel back and give her an opportunity to sing. As I recall, my one of my big complaints was there's not enough James Marsden in this. Uh, and there really was not. Uh, I, I felt like the things that were good about the first one were not translated. They, as I recall, they tried to kind of do another different kind of fish out of water story that wasn't as effective and just felt like lazy recycling. So yeah, I was not a fan. Yeah, I wasn't super sold on it either. It does two things that I really enjoyed, one of which was letting Maya Rudolph play a really over-the-top villain. I thought she was a lot of fun. And the other one was Amy Adams' character, uh, Giselle, gets kind of infected with a turning into a villain curse. Mm -hmm. So she spends the movie alternating between that little fairy voice that she uses throughout Enchanted and like a deeper, huskier villain voice. And watching her go back and forth between those two modes in Disenchanted, I thought was fun. And an awful lot of the rest of it was just, hey, here's an element that you liked. Let's do it again, but with a bigger budget. You know, the the old sequel problem. Mm -hmm. So I am curious if there are people out there that uh, are watching Disenchanted over and over and over that are like eight years old right now. And that's going to be their (laughs) touchstone, like their beloved movie. But I... It's kind of astounding that this film, I mean, that the sequel is kind of a world-beating film like Enchanted would go right to Disney Plus. But it was so much later. I mean, it was over a decade later that it came out. But but we had already, you know, as we were saying, it was... uh, There are plenty of people who who cherished it, I suppose, and you've got a return of the main cast and woof. We were also, you know, we had moved past the immediate COVID era of everything's just going directly to streaming services because we know that it'll fail if we put it in theaters and we don't want to spend the money for it. But it was uh-huh. still pretty squarely in the era of if we have something that we think might make enough of a splash to sell people on our streaming service and we can market this as exclusive content for that streaming service, it's probably worth it. You know, it was the era of Pixar movies going direct to, to Disney Plus yeah. uh, or the the Lady and the Tramp live action version, which the live <laughs> action versions of Disney movies sometimes make a billion dollars in in theaters. You know, the metrics were still being messed with at that point. But also, so, I think that even though something can be a touchstone for you that doesn't necessarily mean you want a sequel. 
And I mean, as another example, we talked about Hocus Pocus before. They finally made oh, another God. Hocus Pocus, which they were talking about for eons. And I, I haven't even watched it. But from what I understand, it was not very good. I, I did not hear nearly as much chatter about the movie once it came out as I did for years about, will they make another Hocus Pocus 2? I think people like to talk about getting another one. And then when they get there, I'm like, uh. I don't want to watch that. I'll just watch Hocus Pocus again, you yeah. know? <laughs> Especially when it's right there on the same streaming service. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just sort of the endless problem of if you love something because you saw it for the first time when you were seven years old or, or nine or 12 or like whatever age was perfect for you for that. It's a, a special thing in your heart. And when you say, I want a sequel, what you mean is... I want to be seven years old experiencing Hocus Pocus or Enchanted yeah. or the Goofy movie for the first time or Star Wars for that matter. And the companies, these companies keep giving us more and more and more of these things and they can't give us more of being seven years old. So that's always going to be an issue. Not yeah. yet, Or Tasha. make it good is another thing. <laughs> if, they, if they just make these not terrible... <laughs> <laughs> good good instead i think that you get a different result that way as well, well that, I don't know. Be... that sounds like a lot of work scott <laughs> that's that's it, fair it's scott. very hard that, very hard I, that sounds like exactly the the feedback that disney is inherently looking for is just send them a letter saying make your movies good and not bad <laughs> of feedback we're going to take a break and and do a little feedback before we wrap the show up time for feedback but before we get to it we want to shout out film spotting the next picture shows mothership podcast hosted by adam campanar and josh larson as we record this adam and josh's most recent episode dives into mission impossible dead reckoning part one and their latest top five episode uh, follows the best actor director duos since the year 2000 you can find those episodes at filmspotting.net as for feedback, here's a blast from the very recent past from a listener who wrote in with a note about our pairing of Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and Island of Lost Souls. Scott, would you read this one for us? Sure. Larry writes, I enjoyed your discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, I just wanted to elaborate a bit on the quote-unquote big dumb Drax and his disdain for dancing. The emotional significance of him joining the celebration at the end of the movie only hit me on a second viewing. If you recall, he looks down on dancers in Volume 1. In a post credit scene, Baby Groot tries not to get caught grooving to the Jackson 5. In a scene from Volume 2, Drax hilariously recalls the moment he knew his wife was the one for him. Quote, the most melodic song in the world we could be playing, she wouldn't even tap her foot, wouldn't move a muscle. One might assume she was dead, end quote. So when he has to say bye for now to his buddy Mantis, he finally finds the joy in just letting go to the rhythm. It's a nice, touching moment for her guy who seems to only get off on violence. I know Dave Bautista doesn't really enjoy playing him, but it would be a shame to lose Drax. Yeah, as the person that called that out as a, a thing that bothered me, I will say this. I found it very effective um, emotionally. I, I was actually caught up by Drax dancing, and I credit a lot of that to Bautista, but also, you know, to some degree, just to a character that does not like experiencing joy, does not want to experience joy, and looks down on people experiencing joy experiences joy. But at the same time, I recognize the manipulation and I resent it. I, pretty much any time a movie does one of these just very big, very broad, very loud, character will never do this under any circumstances whatsoever uh, for whatever reason. And then the big payoff in the end is the character does the thing they never do. I just, I feel like if, if I respond to it, I feel like a sucker. And if I don't respond to it, I feel like they think I'm a sucker. So that's that's kind of where I ended up with that. At least it's not a cut, though. The, the worst it's not is a Gilligan it's a cut. cut. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna do this cut. You're doing the thing. So at least you get a little bit of space between. I'm not gonna do it, and then the person doing it. I was trying to figure out what TV tropes would call that like setup response. A character has never done X or will never do X. And I was thinking about examples. The examples that I could think of are things like like Scrooge, the Tiny Tim equivalent, you know, we're told experienced a horrible trauma and hasn't spoken since. And we don't even know if he can still speak. And like, of course, at the end of the movie, he says something. Silent Bob, the the very first clerks, when the guy that doesn't speak the entire movie and his name is literally Silent Bob, comes out and says something meaningful. 
I felt pretty good about that. But then when he did it in every other movie that he appeared in, I, I just started to find it very cynical. But I went and looked at TV tropes uh, under Gilligan cut because I, I thought maybe under disambiguation, it would have more about what do you call it if this is if it's spread out over the course of a movie. And instead, what I found out is that uh, Gilligan cut was the very first trope to ever be placed on TV tropes, which I thought was oh, pretty fun. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a good piece of trivia there. Yeah. yeah, it's nice of them to put it right on the page. I'm curious uh, whether whether or not you saw Guardians 3, whether or not you have a feeling about Drax dancing, if anybody else has a feeling on on just that, that particular feeling of a movie tells you you can't have something, so they'll give it to you later. And you, it, it, we, it, we see it in rom-coms a lot, too. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get tied down. I'm not going to fall for this girl. Like, I'm, I'm not going to engage in a relationship with this person who I'm <sighs> writing an article about for a, a magazine. And then, of course, you get it in the end. Well, Enchanted does it, too, with the sing- him singing, you know, him, or, sure. or dancing, you know. Uh, well, both. Yeah, yeah. To, to just take it back to Larry's letter and, and Drax, I understand like you having that reaction, Tasha. I think just in this particular case, it doesn't hit me that way. Maybe be- just because I think it's, as Larry points out, just kind of meant to be an illustration of, of growth or moving on, you know, uh, for, for Drax. It's not necessarily meant as a comedic beat. Like, oh, we gotcha. You know, like it's it's mm. comedic because that's like the mode that Guardians is working in. But in the context of Drax as a character, you know, if you are kind of thinking about it, as Larry points out, as him just like kind of moving beyond his past and his trauma and, you know, everything that informed his very serious uh, violence centric persona and the dancing being representative of that, I think it becomes, like I say, a moment of catharsis instead of just kind of a cheap punchline. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that I had thought about it that much until literally this second, but that was <laughs> what Genevieve said was what my response to it was, too. I didn't I didn't. That's just how I took it. How given that uh, you kind of encountered this more recently, Jen, how do you feel about the enchanted version of this where where we're told he doesn't dance and then he dances and he says, you know, I never said I couldn't dance. I just said I don't. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's just a very rom com type of thing where, again, it's show- it's somebody you have the quote unquote uptight person loosening up and that's their way of illustrating it. I think there are a lot of like little shortcut moments as we talked about in that movie that you're either going to just go with it or not go with it and just be annoyed at the entire film. And I just decided to go with it. (laughs) A darker movie would have had him doing the dance that that he, that that they, that they had spent weeks practicing for their own wedding. But doing doing the dance with with another woman. I think that's damn Scott. I'm telling you, I want to see the darker cut. Do you want to see the version of Guardians of the Galaxy 3 that was directed by Abel Ferrara? You know, there's only so much that guy can direct when he's not on heroin or whatever. Yeah. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Barbie, another film that starts off in a sunny, magical kingdom, then lurches into the real world. But this time, instead of finding love there, it finds the patriarchy. And believe it or not, that is pretty hilarious. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, remember, don't wear too much makeup because that can give boys ideas and boys only want one thing. We're still trying to figure out what that thing is, though. Thank you.